as long as you are not panicking, you 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 can still. Uh, it allows you at least to fight for your life. If you are panicking, you you're dead. So if you focus, if you just try to focus, like 100% on the next move and and how to do it as best as you can, then that negative chatter quietens down. The mind state is generally doing stuff that makes me feel like. I'm prepared, and I belong there, and, and it is legitimate to think that I can do this thing I'm trying to do. Which for me, I'm like, if I'm super afraid, I'm like, screw that. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah, you, you can't be scared falling, you know? If you're scared falling, you shouldn't be up there. I think fear is something, it just comes up if you're in, in the unknown. You know, if you do something you don't know, then you're afraid. Of course, there are going to be fear and doubts, but that's where the opportunity for learning lies. The fear is not being good enough, yeah. Negative self-worth of, you know, not being good enough has always motivated me in large part. It's made me, like, super driven and, like, well, I'm not, I'm not good enough now, but I'm going to be better. If I'm in the negative thought, taking a breath of air always helps. Shake out the fatigue, that helps too. And then what I do from the negative thought is I, I ask myself the right question once again. What is it that I need to do right now? What is the solution? And that, my friends, is the subject matter of this show. To open the dialogue on something that's really talked about, out of fear. We'll be judged and deemed less worthy because we're all admitting we get scared. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And it's not just in climbing. It's in every facet of our life. Fear is one of the most powerful emotions in the universe. Left unchecked. Fear can be weaponized to sway votes for a candidate that ran on a platform of bigotry and hate. Divide a country that was once united. Start trade wars. Build walls along our borders. Or worse yet, give cause and reason to preemptively strike another country militarily. Or to choke in a crux of a climb you are totally wired, all because you're afraid of falling or failing in front of your peers. Which is why it gives me great pleasure to do this show. It focuses on the one topic I've been dealing with my entire life. I'm still dealing with it, really, when I really think about it. I've just gotten really good at dealing with it. In fact, I firmly believe I wouldn't have achieved one-tenth of what I've achieved if it wasn't for fear. So stick around. We've got one heck of a lineup. From Dr. Ran Van Horst, the author of the runaway bestseller, Fear. Lynn Hill, first person, male or female, to free climb the nose of El Cap in a single day. Alain Robert, the French Spider-Man, who has climbed more than 100 towering skyscrapers across the globe. Alex Hummel, who is the only person on the planet to free solo El Cap and Half Dome in Yosemite Valley. Hazel Finley, who is undoubtedly one of the boldest female climbers in the UK. The legendary Steph Davis, who not only free solos big walls without a rope, but she also base jumps off. Arnold Igner, the author and founder of The Rock Warrior's Way. And a very special guest, Heather Widener, the first woman to try climb a 514 route known as China Doll. What you'll find fascinating about her story is, the real battle wasn't on the wall, it was in her mind. So you're in for a treat. I'll start off by asking Dr. Rand Van Horst what her definition of fear is. How I define fear is in essence, it's nothing more than a physical response to stress. But then I think a different layer is that as soon as your body gets the impression that something is at hand, that there is a danger going on, you'll have immediately mental constructs and mental associations. And you'll, you'll have a stream of thoughts that can increase the fear. So that can increase the physical response. And that, to me, together is fear. So it's not just the physical response, even though I guess formally you would say define fear. It's a physical response to stress. But then we, human beings, make it much worse because we have a ton of thoughts about what is going on in our body. And that together accumulates to that very nervous feeling that you want to throw up. Oh, God, that's so true. I remember when I was getting ready to do my first show at the Tropicana Hotel, which is a whole other story. When I peeked through the curtain and saw that it was a packed house with people in the audience like Siegfried and Roy, I suddenly came down with the worst case of butterflies. I know I shouldn't have. I 
had practiced a routine at least a thousand times. But the next thing you know, I was running past all the showgirls and straight into the bathroom where I proceeded to puke my guts out. <laughs> so yes, uh, fear can evoke some pretty strong emotions. My question is, what kind of hormones are being released when we experience a bout of fear? Well, there's the cortisol, of course. Um, there are the stress hormones that get activated by the kidneys. Um, so there are, I think, five or so stress hormones that you can really, well, not feel going through your body, but that are very important in this whole process. Um, and, you know, many of those have a really good function in our body. Like they are the same hormones that make you feel strong when you feel afraid sometimes. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've been saying that all along. When I've been in situations like when my suction cups were slipping on the 63rd floor of the Sears Tower, I had to resort to a pair of skyhooks. I was fighting so hard to stay alive, I literally became superhuman. It was as if my strength had doubled. Is that a result of adrenaline? Adrenaline can do that, but also the cortisol. Mm -hmm. um, so there's nothing wrong with the hormones per se. It's more that if you have an overdose of those over a long period, then you typically get what people call burnout, for example, right? So it's more that if they peak, then it's not good. If they go, if they remain at a peak point, if they peak up and down sometimes and you have a very good recovery after, it's not, it's not bad for your body. It's not good. It's not bad for your mind either. The problem, the real problem for human beings start when, you know, we can't keep them down anymore. Interesting. Is there a particular technique you found more effective for controlling the negative chatter and emotions? Well, I mean, ideally, I would recommend the Lynn Hill's advice, the thing that she learned me when we were interviewing, uh, when we were doing the interview for this book. And that is, as soon as you notice that this is going on in your mind, that you're, you know, becoming overwhelmed, your thoughts are getting scattered, you're, you know, step away. So she says, I would say in general, you know, just I'll try to pick a moment like it's easier for me to think about like being on a climb and maybe it's not a great day and you're, you're already tired, you stayed up too late, whatever your reasoning is, you're not feeling great. I won't push myself, so it's not even like a relative thing, but on a day where there's no reason that I should be tired, there's nothing wrong with me, if a negative thought comes up, it, it's just one of those bubbling thoughts that could just come up and be like this paranoia, but I'm not really the paranoid type. So if it comes up, it, it could just be the random thought, and, and I might acknowledge what that warning is. Um, but generally, I just try to, you know, do what I call a mental shift, where I, you know, take a big breath of air, I regroup, and I allow myself a moment to just like, shift into a different focus. So if I'm in the negative thought, taking a breath of air always helps. Shake out the fatigue, that helps too. And then what I do from the negative thought is I, I ask myself the right question once again. What is it that I need to do right now? What is the solution to my situation now? Because usually you're in between moves. If a thought like that comes up, and you're aware of it, it's because you have time to actually reflect a little bit. But usually, if I'm engaged in climbing, I don't have time for that. I don't have negative thoughts when I'm on the go mode. If I've looked at that hold and decided it's time to go, a negative thought's not gonna suddenly enter while I'm in action. The negative thoughts happen before, or maybe after, if I missed it. Oh yeah, so I really was not feeling good today, you know, if I fell, but, uh, well, depending on how it really went, but I don't really get that upset if I fall usually. Um, I think people get really wrapped up into it emotionally in their identity and they've got so much at stake on a route. They really want it and when they fail, they, ah, they throw their shoes and scream and all that stuff and I don't really find that very useful. Um, the only screaming I do when climbing, actually, that is useful is when you're doing a powerful move you, um, like a karate, it actually, I read somewhere it gives you 10% more 
power. But in any case, it does give you more power because there's a, a play with your oxygen and your diaphragm and there's, there's reasons for it. And, and on the contrary, if I'm on a delicate move and I have to reach really far and I don't, I'm missing just a little bit, I breathe in. Because that brings my chest up and it elevates me. And I can actually grow a little bit, sometimes it's just enough, when I breathe in. And same even with a foothold. If I have to put a foot somewhere in the cavity of where my center is here, uh, you can make room by breathing in. And then your foot comes up easier. So breath is actually pretty important. And other than that, I don't really think about the rhythm because I think I have a pretty natural uh, diaphragmatic or whatever. You're breathing out of your, using your diaphragm more than thinking about your breathing in and filling your lungs. If you breathe in, starting with your stomach, it's much better. And that's step one. The moment you find yourself being overwhelmed by fear, stop what you're doing and focus on your breath. You'll be amazed how quickly it'll calm you down. When I asked Hazel Finley, one of UK's boldest female climbers, how she deals with the negative chatter, this is what she had to say. Well, so like in recent years, when I was doing a lot of climbing in the UK, it kind of was all quite intuitive and I didn't think so much about it. But in the recent years, I've done, I've become like a mental training coach for, for climbers. And so now I've thought a lot about how to switch off that negative chatter. And um, I think, you know, a good way is to like, is to really phys uh, focus on something that's happening right now. So whether that's like the, the movement of the climbing or your breathing or, you know, ambient noise or, you know, looking at something in detail. Because the negative chatter is usually always about something like that's gonna ha that might happen momentarily. It's not actually happened yet. But if you're really distracted by that negative chatter, then it's, it's more likely to happen. So if you focus, if you just try to focus like 100% on the next move and, and how to do it as best as you can, then that negative chatter quietens down. And that's step two. Fear has a funny way of tricking into believing something bad is going to happen, even though the likelihood of it happening is extremely unlikely. So if you concentrate on your breathing and focus on the next move, consciously visualizing the sequence, noting all the footholds, you'll be amazed how quickly the negative chatter will fade. But what if it doesn't? I asked Dr. Ryan Van Hurst, what should you do then? I think for a lot of dreams, this fear of failure comes in between, um, you know, and, and, or not even only fear of failure. So I guess there's two things here, fear of failure or more like an overwhelm because you're building up all this tension and you're right before the anchor, you know, you're going to make it. You're so close. You only need to do one move. And then you kind of lose your concentration because it's just the tension becomes too much. So, so I think that's one thing. So it's not even a conscious fear of failure, but more a realization that, you know, something big is about to happen. And then the tension just becomes too much to bear. And you lose it. That's one thing. And then the fear of failure is such an enemy, I think, of a lot of extreme sports or a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. professional athletes, especially in climbing. Uh, I would say, because it's often also a social sport and you have your peers watching and, you know, everybody's everybody knows that you've been driving up to the same crack for so long. And, you know, sometimes these things happen and the same occurs where you're building up tension in your body and you may not be aware of it. You know, for some people, it's really hard to find out what is exactly mm -hmm. the thing that makes them a little bit more, a little bit more um, unconcentrated or less precise or, you know, um, less strong even because fear, you know, pumps up your arms in a way that that's what the physical response do. You have le less oxygen and so your arms get pumped easier. Some people don't know it's that. I think that is what what is holding them back, but often it is, yeah. Hmm. There's a lot going on in our minds, isn't there? There sure is. 
I've often said climbing is 80% mental and 20% physical, which often makes me wonder if fear is an underlying symptom of something much, much deeper. And for that answer, I couldn't think of anyone better to answer that question than Arnold Igno with The Rock Warriors Way, who also is featured in Rowan Van Horst's book titled Fear. Yes, it's a it's definitely a symptom. It's a symptom of it's it's like when we doubt about what to do, that means that there's some information that we don't have, that we don't know, right? So just when we step into the, the unknown, by definition, there's some unknowns there, right? So we're obviously going to be doubting and there's going to be some fear. And yet, in that unknown, in that stressor, is where the learning occurs. Like you think about difficult rock climbing, we don't really learn more about our abilities if we're climbing routes that are comfortable for us, right? Mm-hmm. So it's when when we push ourselves to harder grades or get into different discipline within climbing, like it might, if we're not familiar with ice climbing, for instance, if we go into that discipline, there are unknowns there. And so, of course, there are going to be fears and doubts, but that's where the opportunity for learning lies. To help you understand uh, what I'm saying and for your listeners to understand it, uh, it's helpful to understand some core tenets of the Warriors Way material because everything I say is structured around those core tenets. So for instance, number one, uh, the Warriors Way approach to mental training has everything to do with attention. Okay, so in other words, we, we're using our mind well if we can focus our attention in the moment on whatever the current task is, right? So that's the, the primary core tenet. So everything I say is going to be based on that. Anything that distracts our attention from the moment needs to be addressed. Uh, and then another core tenet is that in order to have our attention focused in a moment on a task, we need to develop awareness of distractors. Like why do does our attention get distracted from that present moment? Because obviously we're going to perform better if we can keep it there. And then what happens when our attention gets distracted? Well, we, we feel anxiety, like what you're describing for an athlete that doesn't perform as they expected. Uh, they, they can start uh, worrying that they're going to be able to perform well the next time. <clears throat> so it's, so essentially it's important to know uh, what is the task, how do you focus your attention on that task so it is in the moment, and then what are some possible distractors, like what can happen to distract attention so that you can develop practices to bring your attention back. Simple process, right? Attention on task. Mm-hmm. What do you actually focus on to keep it there? And then becoming aware when it gets distracted. So this, uh, another key point about the material is that when you're, when you're looking at attention, there are two basic ways that we focus it. We can focus it in the mind to do critical thinking when we're like gathering information and preparing for a risk or an event. And then there's another way where we focus attention in the body to do the actual event, to to take that risk. So so when when we're doing that half pipe or when when we're climbing from a stopping point to another stopping point, attention needs to be focused in the body on uh, those somatic activities and our senses. So in other words, we it's feeling based, what we can see, uh, ma- mainly those. It's like we can feel our body move, we can feel what it's like if we're having proper posture or not. Uh, we can make sure we're breathing using just the right amount of body tension so we're not uh, overly tense but also not uh, uh, too relaxed. There's a, there, a certain body tension for being able to do whatever skills or activities that we're doing, whether it's climbing or snowboarding. 
And then what we do with our eyes, like maintaining eye contact on the holes that we're grabbing or stepping on. Uh, and, and so when we're doing something, doing that activity, attention needs to be in the body in that simple way. It's just what I'm, on my breathing, where I'm, I'm looking with my eyes, how I'm engaging my body and appropriate body tension. That's it. Now, you know what can happen when you're engaged in that way is attention can shift into the mind, thinking and doubting and wondering and fearing uh, what's happening in the moment. That, that's a distraction. Mm -hmm. So a big practice, an important practice is to become aware of when attention does leave the body, leave those somatic ways of focusing it uh, into thinking processes, doubting your ability to do uh, what you did or wondering about if you're going to be able to achieve the goal or compete as well as the previous competitor competed. So, so prior to the event, prior to the risk, you know, prior to whatever, if it's the, the snowboard event or the climb, we do think critically about what we're getting ready to do. But we're thinking about the event. We're not thinking about, I hope I win. You know, we're not thinking about the, our desire to achieve the end result. We're not thinking about the other competitors and how we're worrying about being able to beat them. We're thinking about uh, what is the goal and what am I actually going to focus on to achieve that goal. So uh, it might be in, in climbing, it's, it's simple. It's, you think about, okay, the next protection is 10 feet above me. Uh, there's a certain consequence about uh, when I go, there's a certain fall consequence. You know, if, if I don't have enough strength, you know, to climb to that point. So I need to look down, check out that consequence. And then I can be doing critical thinking about, uh, what's the easiest way between where I am and that next protection point? So that you you have the 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 pieces of information that are important that you need to know, need to think about for taking that risk that you're getting ready to do. And then when it's time to take action, you just you do a, a transition exhale. It's like a marker. No more thinking, no more recovering energy. Now it's time to shift attention into the body and uh, apply that energy and, and do the actual climbing. Uh, so, so we get in trouble as athletes when we mix those all together. You know, we're thinking and doing, using the mind and the body all together. When we're taking that action, it's like uh, the conscious mind can't think fast enough to integrate everything that the body is doing as it's uh, as it's going through that particular movement, whether it's a, a snowboard or a, a climber or whatever. It's like we have to trust our practice uh, so that all of the trillions and trillions of aspects of the body and mind and how they integrate together, they need to come together as one performance, right? You can't just have the arm doing something separate from the legs and, and your center and, and so forth. Your, your whole body-mind has to be integrated into one performance. And that can't be done with the conscious mind. It has to be done at a, a subconscious level. And, and that's why when, when you're practicing, your, your whole purpose is to practice in such a way so that you can develop that integration so that the body you can trust the body to do what it needs to do without thinking about it fascinating i know you've worked with a lot of beginner to intermediate climbers to help them overcome their fear of falling but have you worked with any world-class climbers to see if your methods could work for them some of the uh, one athlete that i've been working with is heather widener in out of boulder colorado she's you know, a professional climber, she, she doesn't compete per se, you know, like on the, the competition circuit that can take uh, athletes, you know, toward the Olympics or toward the World Cup. Uh, she's a professional climber in that uh, she's climbing at a high level 
and she's doing climbs that are, you know, moving toward the forefront of what's most difficult in our sport, in particular for her uh, in trad climbing. So in other words, when, when she did, when she achieved uh, a goal of climbing this traditional route in near Boulder called China Doll, it was a 514 trad climb, uh, she became one of a handful of women to be able to climb the 514 trad grade. So she's climbing at the cutting edge in the particular discipline for women. And, and yet she also was struggling with uh, issues of frustration and depression and uh, kind of the self-worth issues, tying how she felt about herself to the achievements that she was creating. So, uh, so we started, uh, we talked about her process when I met her in 2016 and, and she wanted to work through those issues where she, uh, she, she was in kind of caught in a, a cycle that I called achievement addiction. Now, like she, uh, she would set a goal and she would work toward it and achieve it. But then after that achievement, she would fall into a depression, like she would lose her motivation until she would set another big goal and then work toward achieving. So in other words, she, she only feels good about herself when she makes that achievement and she tends to get uh, down on herself if she's not making progress or if she's not achieving and then fall into sort of a depression. It's not a, a healthy way to be. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like we, we approach climbing or anything really uh, as a victim where we feel good or bad about ourselves based on what's happening in the external situation instead of having more of an internal locus of control about uh, how we feel about ourselves. So the transformation that uh, she went through was finding a way to shift out of that toward a more learning-based motivation where she she's curious about the learning process and and separating how she feels about herself from cre- those end, end result achievements that she's creating. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense, which is why I believe this is step three. Beware of becoming an achievement junkie where you start comparing yourself to others. I think many of us have been pushing the limits that can relate to what Arnold just shared with us. I know for myself, I fell victim to chasing the next high. Metaphorically, that is. As soon as I free sold a particular route, or a towering skyscraper, I was off to the next. Sure, that high would last for a while, but it wouldn't last forever. Which is why I reached out to Heather Widener. I could really identify with her story. It seems like when I read your blog that you went through a similar transformation where you had to determine what your motivation was. Can you tell us more about that whole process you went through? For sure. Well, I think that in our society, it's kind of taught to us that, you know, we go through life being like, okay, we need to fulfill this objective. You know, first, you know, we need to get straight A's. We need to be on the honor roll. We need to graduate college. We need to, you know, then get a good job. We need to get married by a house, blah, blah, blah. And, like, instead of, like, really appreciating um, each moment of your life, it's kind of more about like a little bit like one upping, you know, like this, like, mm, kind of immediate gratification type thing. So for me, I think it was a way of masking my lack of self-worth by achieving things, you know, like I never felt like I was very smart and I never felt like I was you know, good at sciences, but I was like, I'm going to become a veterinarian. And then I did. And so like, it's almost like proving something to myself, very ego driven. And uh, same with climbing. It's like, I never felt like I was like, super talented or super strong or anything like that. But I was like, I'm going to do, you know, 514 sport climb. And then once, you know, I kind of hit a little bit of a limit with sport. I was like, I want to, you know, do take it to the next level in trad, like achieve this big goal. You know, it's a lot of like to have goals. And I think it's really fun, you know, to have 
um, motivations in order to like shape your life. But I think just staying true to like your deeper like motivation is key because if you're just like out there to send, then you're just going to be disappointed because most of the time you're not sending, you know, if you're really pushing your physical mental limits. So, so yeah, for me, it was more like I had to really be like, wait, why did I start climbing? Why do I love climbing? Because after China doll, it was kind of like, whoa, like what now? I just did a 514A trad climb and it's like, do I just go back to like, you know, trying to red point like 13 and 14 sport climbs? Like it just didn't seem like I could, take it to the next level which I felt like I needed to do I think for my own like lack of self-worth ego stuff so for me coming back to like why do I love climbing I love it for you know the community I love it for being able to feel alive you know like to be present in your body and your mind and um, you know takes you to beautiful places and travel and all of these things versus you know I just want to like achieve the next big thing for me, you know? Yeah, you really yeah. touched on something there that's um, the beginner's mindset. How, yeah, definitely. How many of us, myself included, ha- had to go through that process of reminding myself of why I got into climbing in the first place. Right. You know, because yeah, when you first get important. It's important. It really is because when you first get into climbing, you don't even know about grades. You don't know about right. anything, really. Yeah. You know, yeah, and then all of a sudden... Yeah, like, this is cool. <laughs> you're, yeah, you just love hanging out with your friends and uh, going outside, and you're just... Being outside, exciting, yeah. new. Totally. Yeah, it's, you get kind of caught up in this, like... It's, I think it's really ego-driven. It's like, ooh, like, I did this grade, and then maybe I can do the next grade, which is really fun, except... You know, that doesn't last forever. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Nothing lasts forever. What goes up will eventually come crashing down. I asked the late Louis Deck and Alain Robert, who we'll be hearing from later, and Alex Hunnell, the taboo of all questions. How do you know when to stop? Because certainly, that has to weigh in the back of their minds. How will you know when the time is right to stop? It's always a big question for so many people. Like, for example, Dean Potter. Um, yeah. You know, you look back at that guy, he was the most talented, gifted, extreme athlete out there because he was good at three different sports and took him to the highest degree you could possibly take him and, and every level. Um, how do you know when to stop so you don't do that one last climb? That yeah, I mean, take? I don't know. I, I, I thought about that a lot, actually, after Dean died. Um, I, I I thought of it as the achievement treadmill. You know, when you're, like, on a little treadmill and you do something and then you have to do something else and you have to do something else and you keep, like, charging along the treadmill, you're, like, at what point do you get off the treadmill before you get before it goes too fast and you get ejected? You know, mm-hmm. which... Um, yeah, I mean, I thought about that a bunch after Dean. But, I don't know, I mean, ultimately you just do, you know, whatever you're passionate for. I mean, Dean was still all fired up and motivated and had plans and, and projects and... um. I don't know. I mean, I feel like as long as I still have the fire for it, I'll keep, I'll keep moving forward. Yeah, I, I think the one big difference that I've seen in interviews with between uh, Dean Potter and you, Dean um, talked about death a lot. Hmm. In terms, like he was almost, it was almost like this romantic thing uh, that going on. He was intrigued by it, and I yeah, see with you. Was... Go on. Um, whereas with you, I see that uh, you're more intrigued with life. <laughs> I, I try to be. I try to try to stay alive. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Dean Dean also was had a different relationship with fear and everything, and and just the whole the whole process was so different for him. You know, whereas for me, it's just like I just like to go climbing. I like to do the things that I enjoy doing. I mean, obviously, I like try hard and push myself in them, but it's still like just a matter of having fun. Whereas for Dean, it just all seemed like a little bit more hardcore, you know, mm-hmm. like being being really afraid and like thinking about death and then like, you know, overcoming that fear and doing those things anyway. Whereas for me, I'm like, if I'm super afraid, I'm like, screw that. I'm just not going to do it. And that's step four. 
never feel like you have to do something if it doesn't feel right. If you want to know why Alex Hunnell is still alive, trust your gut intuition. I can't tell you how many times I've backed off a route, or a building for that matter, all because it didn't feel right. I know I'm talking about getting the butterflies. That is a huge difference, and you need to learn how to distinguish the differences. Your gut intuition is like a Geiger counter. When it goes off, pay attention. It might be the only warning you may ever get. When I asked Dr. Ryan Van Hurst what other athlete really impressed her, I wasn't surprised when she said Steph Davis, who, as many of you may know, was married to Dean Potter and is, to this very day, considered one of the few women on the planet that can free solo big walls and base jump off. A Steph Davis, for example, she prepares. You know, she she really has practiced so often for her free solo climbs, for example. You know, she really only jumps in a wingsuit um, when she feels 100% ready for the jump. She doesn't go if it doesn't feel good. So how do you train your mind? Is there any particular technique or method you like to practice? Yeah, um, I think... And, you know, this is interesting because I, I will say that I feel people are very different and um, <laughs> people have very different personality types. So, you know, obviously what works for me is not the same for other people. And, and the reason I'm saying all this before I start into what I would want to talk about is that I know that very specific to me um, and, you know, maybe some other people out there, I've always had... Um, I would say if I'm on the scale of being underconfident versus overconfident, I would probably lean more towards the underconfident side. So for me, it's always been really important to um, feel like I, I belong there if I'm going to do something that, that's scary or hard or difficult. Um, I'm not the kind of person that just shows up and is like, yeah, I got this, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people are. So... So the comments I'm making probably wouldn't apply. Like if you're on the if you're the type of person that's just like, yeah, I can do it, then then my way isn't necessarily the correct way. But um, generally that does start with the physical training because I have to feel like, you know, as an objective observer, yes, it is possible I should be able to do this thing physically, um, as opposed to kind of wondering about it. So it usually kind of starts with physical training and then. And then that gives me a lot of confidence because when I'm kind of previewing what I'm trying to go ahead and do, if it's kind of a thing that I think is sort of out there for me, then I can say, hey, you know, let's sit back objectively. Let's analyze what you want to do, how you want to do it. And realistically, you are totally physically capable of doing this. Um, and that really helps me a lot. So when I get mm -hmm. to the point where I'm in the moment of like, okay, you know, I'm going to go for it. It's not like I'm just showing up and being like, yeah, you know, there's a good chance I'll pull it off. It's like I'm showing up and being like, hey, I'm totally prepared. I've done everything I could possibly do to be ready for this thing, and now I just need to keep it together. Right on. So when you're climbing, you're free soloing, are you like like almost in this meditative state where you're breathing a certain way, or what's going on for you? Yeah, yeah. So, like I say, you know, I show up and I feel like I'm 110% prepared. That's that's always the way I say it to myself. You get like, I'll, I'll go train. I'll train, and you know, every time I go and and prepare on a day, I'll say, okay, you know, today I feel like I'm 80% ready to do it. And then one day I'll be like, you know what? I'm 100% ready to do that thing. I could do it right now. And then I train more, and I'm like, okay, now I'm 110% ready. Like, this should be no problem for me. So when I show up, I'm thinking, I'm 110% ready. So all I have to do now is just stay relaxed and feel good because there's no doubt in my mind that I'm absolutely able to do this safely today. And that's step five. As Arnold Igner with a Rock Warriors way said, fear can be an indication that you are entering the unknown and that you may not be properly prepared. Which means, if you want to climb 512 or harder, or if you want to be surfing big waves, or to drop into steep ass chutes on your skis or snowboard, or take gnarly line on your mountain bike, you gotta accept the fact that you're gonna have to train. 
and make a number of sacrifices. You aren't gonna get there by being a weekend warrior. You know what I mean? And if you do that, you will develop a level of confidence that will dramatically reduce the negative effects of that emotion we call fear. When I talked to the late Uli Steck, he had this to say about how he prepared himself mentally. Tell us about your mental training. How do you train your mind to combat negative thoughts in your head? It's, it's hard to say. It's, for me, like going on a route or whatever, it, I need to have a good preparation. And that's basically physical preparation. And then I feel comfortable. And I, I have to do that approach, you know, like just to get this self-confidence that I can do it. And this comes only from physical training. Yeah, no, physical training is so important on everything. It's like you can't have one without the other. Exactly. But, you know, like the physical training, I can measure. And I know it. And, and mental mental strength, it's, you cannot measure it. It's, and it's always different. There's no, I don't know, uh, time changes, you know, like you're in a different mood. It's... Uh, and, and physical training, it's so easy to handle. So it, it, it's really easy to, to measure. And then it, uh, yeah, you have the numbers and then you know you can do it. I think you have to be really rational, like doing all this soloing, you know. Mm -hmm. you, you can't have uh, any emotions doing a climb. When you find yourself in a life or death situation, how do you deal with fear? Usually, I, I don't, I don't have fear in the mountains. Uh, and I'm in the mountains. I, I feel really, really comfortable. And I think that's the point. That's why I'm doing it. If I wouldn't feel comfortable, I would not do it. So, of course, there are situations which are difficult and you know like okay now you have to get focused on dealing with the situation but you have a plan you know and then you're not you're not afraid i think fear is something it just comes up if you're in in the unknown you know if you do something you don't know then you're afraid have, have you ever thought you're going to die it's not you know, in the situations you're in, and like, I don't know, that spin drift that got hit in the, on the Puna South face, you're not thinking you're going to die. You're thinking like, oh, shit, this is not good. I'm going to fall off the face. But it's nothing. And just you concentrate, like, how I can fight against this. Um, and you, I mean, it's afterwards, of course, uh you know, like, okay, this was, was pretty, pretty dangerous and it, it was close, but then it's already over. Is there a particular technique when you're in that situation that you use to quiet that mind? I, I'm, I'm super quiet always. Like, I'm, I think that's, that's my strength. I'm really like, when I'm climbing, I can really, like avoid any emotions is your mind blank no it's not blank it's just focus on what you're doing and that's step six just focus on what you're doing i know it may sound like a cliche but it's so true if you can keep your attention focused on the present moment and you don't let yourself get as distracted not only will you take your game to an entirely new level but you will most likely won't experience any of the negative emotions associated with fear when I asked Alain Robert, the French Spider-Man, who's had more than a hundred billion ascents to his name, how does he deal with fear and the prospect of dying when he's laying on the line? This is what he had to say. Actually, I, I, let's say that I am uh, available uh, mentally, meaning I accept it. Uh, I know that what I'm doing uh, can be deadly, but deep down, I, I still want to do it Meaning, uh, it doesn't mean that my life doesn't count uh, anymore, but let's say that 
my dream is um, is more important than anything. So I know that once I will be dealing with the uh, obstacle, my uh, my fear of uh, of dying won't it will disappear. I will put it aside. That that is maybe one of my uh, quality. That that is one of the reasons why I can do uh, soloing like that, and also for so long, because there is about four years that I've been uh, free soloing. As I said a few times, uh, when you are pretty much dead, you feel even more alive. You you know you you need you need to be close to your death to feel. Uh, you know, you, you can feel life running into your veins. It, it's even stronger than, you know, when you are doing just your basic stuff like uh, walking or, or whatsoever, you, you, you don't feel so alive. It's just normal, like uh, any other human being. When you know that you are going to attempt something uh, a bit crazy on the edge, then you know that. You know, your, your consciousness is also telling you there is life and there is death. So meaning, consciously, you are moving to, towards your death, but deep down, you really want to stay alive and you fight to stay alive. Okay. It, it is, yeah. it, it is the, the survival instinct. Definitely, it is. You, you know, the good thing then, I'm talking with somebody uh, who has climbed uh, free solo also a lot. And it, it is maybe one of the most interesting discussion I am having in my life about uh, fear and free soloing. You know, usually they are basic uh, questions and uh, not really interesting. And with you, I am captivated. Me, I, I'm not having the feeling that... Uh, I think if one day I am really sick, like uh, so, something really uh, weakening my body, then obviously uh, I will have to stop. Other than that, I'm going to continue to do the same stuff. Except, yes, my body is uh, getting uh, older. I am not as strong as before. so. What I'm doing now is not as difficult as what I was doing uh, 25 years ago, but still I will be uh, continuing because this is what keeps me alive. I couldn't agree more. I've never felt more alive than when I placed my life on the line. There is a moment of clarity, which is hard to describe. It's like you've slipped through the vortex of time and you're in a completely separate but heightened reality. Funny thing is, you don't actually have to place your life on the line to have this experience. It's important to note that. Which is why I'd like to add one final step. Step seven. When you're about to undertake something that could be dangerous, think of all the negative possibilities. Not to dwell on them for the purpose of stirring up your fears, but to make sure you have the proper response and the equipment to assure you success. If you're into mountain biking, down a steep, rocky single track at high speeds, <laughs> it might be a good idea to wear a full-blown helmet and body armor, don't you think? And the same is true when snowboarding in the backcountry. It might be wise to consider wearing a beacon with an inflatable avalanche pack. And the same is true with surfing. If you're going to drop into a massive wave of the Mavericks, you might want to wear a helmet and inflatable vest. These precautions might not only save your life, you'll find it will dramatically reduce the negative effects of fear. Before scaling my very first skyscraper, which happened to be the Sears Tower in Chicago, formerly ranked as the tallest building in the world, I worked out every possible scenario imagined, right down to my suction cups popping off. I had the foresight of taping sky hooks to my chest. And if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here today because that's exactly what happened on the 63rd floor. The subject matter of a show I promised to share when I'm preparing to release my own book titled Untethered, when success is your only option. If you enjoyed this show, please like and share with your friends. And don't forget to visit our website at www.tripleblack.com.
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com and sign up. You don't want to miss any of our upcoming shows. This is Dan Gooden with TripleArt.com signing out. Actually, the, the good thing is that you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't even have that kind of uh, thought on your mind because uh, you, you know, when, when, you are, when you are busy fighting for your life, you, that is your, that is your, that is your, your target, you know. You don't, you don't even have time to, you, you can only be uh, focused on one thing at the same time. You cannot be focused on fighting for your life and thinking that uh, you're going to fall and you're going to die. You've lost a few friends over the years. How will you know when it's time for you to stop? I will never stop climbing because climbing gives me so much in my life. Uh, but you have to be careful. It's, it's like what we were talking about, like keeping going, like free soloing and everything. It's It just adds up. It's like a numbers game. And yeah, it's a numbers game. It's, it, it's calculation, and sooner or later it goes, it goes wrong. So you really have to, to move on and, and do other things and maybe move into another level of risk. And, and also accept that, like, you can't go further, you know? Like, I can't go in this direction what I did on Annapurna. This is done. If I keep going on this, I'm going to die and pretty soon. So it doesn't make any sense. So I need to find other challenges to climb. Yeah, if you want to... If you want to try climbing, if you want to go to Yosemite and, and try to get on a big wall, then, you know, be brave and, you know, work toward it and go do it. <laughs> I, I try to be. I try to, try to stay alive, you know. 